0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bolling. I'm pleased to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference on the concern around missing data in mobile clinical trials. This panel was led by Jennifer Goldsack of the Digital Medicine Society, and the panelists included Takeda's Dr. Ariel Dowling, ICON's Marie McCarthy, Pfizer's Dr. Carrie Northcutt, and Dr. Shyamal Patel. For details on the upcoming 2020 conference, visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. So thanks everyone for hanging in through the afternoon. I'm thrilled to be able to welcome this expert panel to discuss a topic that I think serves as a bit of a bellwether for where we are as a field. I think um, even a couple of years ago, this topic wasn't forefront in anyone's mind because we weren't at this point yet. And I think the fact we're now bumping up uh, against issues like this and considerations like this um, shows sort of how far we're moving uh, as a field. Um, what I'm uh, excited to uh, offer up is that I think um, our experts this afternoon uh, are Incredibly experienced and thoughtful, and definitely have good solutions to offer folks in the audience who are encountering sort of challenges around missing digital data. Um, and rather than me uh, undersell our uh, panel this afternoon, I'm actually going to ask panelists to introduce themselves um, one, a little bit about their expertise, but it would also be great if you guys could share a little bit about how you're encountering this topic of missing digital data um, in your work today. Shamal.
1: So, my name is Shamal Patel, Um, I lead a group of data scientists at at Pfizer uh, in the digital medicine and translational imaging group. Um, uh, My work is focused on developing new digital endpoints uh, by taking raw sensor data and translating it into clinically meaningful measures of health. Um, uh, So I, you know, the the work that I do kind of touches the data. Immediately after it is it is collected, so essentially at the very raw level, raw accelerometer data, raw ECG. Uh, so for me, missing data, um, dealing with missing data starts at the very beginning, at the at the level of the bits, uh, all the way to you know looking at um, data, essentially non-compliance data where somebody might not be wearing um, devices or uh, there are technical issues that lead to gaps in the data. So we try to address. Um, uh, this aspect of missing data starting from the very beginning, and typically it, it depends on on um, on a specific project or, or the the type of um, endpoint that we are developing. Um, so if you're if you're trying to develop an endpoint that looks at heart rate or heart rate variability. Um, a, a beat, missing beat here and there, does not have necessarily a huge impact as long as you have sufficiently large amount of, uh, or continuous um, sort of measurements of heart rate uh, over a long period of time. Um, but for for other, other conditions where you might be measuring rare events like a fall uh, or a seizure, uh, missing even very small periods of data could be, you know, could change, uh, fundamentally change the endpoint. Um, and so from, uh, from addressing this, this challenge, we take um, approaches from uh, all the way from signal processing, machine learning, to statistics, traditional uh, statistics to, to, to try to deal with uh, this problem.
2: Hello, my name is Arielle Dowling, and I'm at Takeda in the Data Sciences Institute. My focus is on digital clinical devices, so I help in the implementation of wearable devices from choosing the device, picking which one's most appropriate for the clinical trial that we're looking at, all the way to working with the vendors, getting the device within our trial, working within Takeda to talk with all the different stakeholders that will, that will deal with the device, all the way to when the data comes in, how do we do data analytics on it, how are we analyzing the data, is it giving us what we need to see how our patients are, are feeling and functioning within the clinical trial. I come from a data analytics and data science background as well, uh, doing a lot of similar things to what has done with the analyzing uh, digital endpoints, looking at, you know, data from the raw data all the way to the, to the metrics that are produced from it. And one of the things that I've always noticed with missing data is what happens with you, you know, even if you have a very standardized clinical trial, you're still going to have some subjects who miss a visit or subjects that miss, you know, part of a visit or come in and say they can't do something that day, but they can do it again at the next visit. So you have this sort of patchy network of data that's coming in from either a digital clinical device or from a traditional clinical data that's, that's, uh, that you have to, have to handle and have to manage in terms of how are you going to use this patient's data? Can this patient still be included in the trial? How do you, if you have a baseline visit that's missing, is the trial completely, is that patient completely out because now you don't have a baseline of them before they started on the the interventional drug etc so there's a lot of ways that missing data can affect not just from the you know did the device even give me the data I need but did, did the patient even come in to give me the data from the device
3: I'm in technology I can't get the microphone to work um, so my name is Marie McCarthy I am, I work with icon and I'm part of the innovation team in icon and my role in icon is very similar to, to Ariel's to really help the deployment of technology and study. So working with device vendors to help select the right device um, and really helping the operational team then in order to, to look at things like data, what is a valid data set. And I think, you know, if you look at the whole area of missing data, for me, there were, there were three elements. It's actually defining what is meant by a valid data set because you don't know if something is missing, if you actually haven't defined what that actually means, what is that valid data set. It's around the compliance, because ideally there wouldn't be any data missing, because you've selected a device that the study participants are happy to wear, they're happy to wear for the duration of the study, the connectivity is really good, so there actually isn't an issue of missing data. And then we have world peace. And <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that isn't the case. And even in terms of, of trying to understand whether something is um, missing at random. So if somebody like me who forgets to, to put a device back on because even though I know it's waterproof, I take it off when I have a shower. Or actually probably in, in the situation, Carrie, you were describing where it's missing not at random. So the device is actually causing an itch. Or There's itching underneath and, and those things are, are, are quite different and it's really important to try and understand that and Then it's around the the analytics piece. I, I'm not a statistician I can add to subtract and do mean that's probably about the size of my my statistical um, Expertise, but there are obviously techniques out there. I mean data has been missing since time immemorial and, and so can we actually you know, use some of those types of, of, um, of uh, analysis and frameworks that are already in existence. Even some of the risk based monitoring, the, the, the tolerance, quality tolerance limits, and some of those issues can they be used to try and, and deal with missing data? And as I said, you know, for me, one of the issues is around this stakeholder engagement. How early are the stats team brought in to the digital studies? How early are they brought in to the feasibility studies? And I think, you know, Shami, you were saying that in, in, in your organisation, it's very early. They're, they're part of the project. I'm not sure it's the same in all organisations because sometimes feasibility studies are about the tech and the patient and getting stuff to work without actually doing the analysis. And so for me, this is a really exciting conversation, Jen, just to see what other people are doing and really to see if there's something that can help the the industry kind of move forward. Because I think that's the beauty of the conference is it's our experience, but it's your experience as well and, and maybe coming up with some sort of consensus. Okay.
4: I don't really need to talk, I guess. I think you covered it. (laughs) I like this. Um, Carrie Northcott, um, a director and project lead, um, as you heard earlier, uh, within digital medicine, translational imaging at Pfizer. Um, I lead several validation feasibility projects, three within um, monitoring nighttime scratch and sleep. Great teams, um, as Shamal and others have pointed out, we try and bring everyone together really early on. My background is actually pharmacology and toxicology. So I come in clear at the scientific question, then we start to think about devices and planning the study and then go through execution all the way through the end and statistical analysis. So I see from soup to nuts the whole deal. I also then also work with asset teams and work on how to deploy digital devices in clinical trials as well. So I see uh, the other side too and the operational end of it as well. So. When it came to missing data, you have to think about, I always say in a couple of different layers, there's the data aspect, but it's also understanding the pharmacology, et cetera, the the various compounds that we're looking at, understanding where those key data points are and making sure that we have those captured. And also when we go to the protocols, et cetera, making sure we build this in early on um, how many subjects we're gonna need, understand the statistical validation aspect of how many we're gonna need to get that stats that we need, what do we do with it, and put those into those protocols and SAPs early on so when we get to the data collection point, we know what to do with it and it's pre- preordained, if you will, so we know how to handle it. With that said, a lot of that's still a mystery on how much we need. Um, How many data points can we be missing? At what point can we miss them? And I think that's part of what I'm excited about to hear everybody else's thoughts and opinions and how to handle this as we move forward.
0: Fantastic. So um, definitely a world-class panel to be having this conversation this afternoon. Um, and Marie, I really like how you kind of teed things up, which is there's an opportunity to to be thoughtful and proactive to try and minimise missing data. But I think you know we can also strive for world peace as well. But we're still going to have <laughs> conflict. So you know the focus of our panel this afternoon is going to be you know when missing data does arise, how do we handle that, and how can we do that in a way that's most Ethical towards our patients, right? So we're not discarding data set that's potentially usable. And how do we sort of uh, not allow that to sort of hamstring progress? Um, so maybe we could start. How do we define a valid data set and what missing means in the digital era? And how is it different to a traditional data set? Big question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So I can I can um, I can start. I can I can give an example of of uh, kind of a way an approach we are taking to to understand this question of you know whether you know when do you consider that data is missing or the other way how much data do you really need? Um, So for some of our work where we are looking at gate speed as a digital endpoint, um, uh, one of the questions that we are asking from our uh, pilot data sets um, is how much data would we need when we deploy this endpoint into a clinical trial? And we look at, we, look at, we start by looking at all the way from a granularity point of view of, um, of a, a single step. So, how many steps do you need to uh, derive a meaningful estimate of, of gate speed that would be equivalent to? you know, having all, you know, the maximum amount of steps that you can have by deploying a device for let's say a week or, or 14 days. Uh, the other way to look at it is, is also at a more gra- less granular level, um, how many days of uh, data would you need? Um, how many days of data would you need to, to get enough uh, samples of observations um, that, you can, um, that you can get a meaningful measure of gate speed? Um, so this can help both in terms of designing uh, clinical trials that, uh, or designing protocols that that you're deploying devices only for uh, a duration that is really necessary. And then when you when you have missing data, you can truly understand whether um, at what threshold does the data become um, not meaningful enough, or or when when do you need to discard. Uh, and then the second aspect is when you have missing data, what type of strategies could you potentially use? So if you use kind of you know re- replacing um, a value with the, the mean value of the points around, around that missing data, is that an appropriate technique for, uh, for, uh, uh, for the problem at hand? And those things can be tested early on in, in small scale studies uh, and then used to inform uh, a large um, you know, clinical trial protocol.
2: I'm going to build a little bit on uh, the example that Shamel gave. So he talked about gate speed. And one of the things that we always look for is the context of the, the metric that you're measuring. So gate speed is, you know we, want to know, we know we want to have gait over multiple different days in order to get an average gait of what the, how fast the people are moving during a typical week. Now, what's really important is to look at the context of how a person typically moves throughout the week. If somebody 's only using the device let 's say at work and is only measuring we 're only measuring gate speed on a monday through friday we 're going to get You know, one particular metric of how they move during the workday, but that leaves out an entire context of what they're like at home. And depending on where, what stage of life they're in, that may be very different. You know, so I can tell from my from my own life during the work week. You know, I have a fairly normal gait speed. I would say, you know, I do most of my walking either walking to work or walking between buildings to go to a different meeting. Maybe I'm hurrying a little bit to get to a meeting that I'm late to or something like that. (laughs) On the weekends, I have a two-year-old who's a runner. I move a lot faster on the weekends when I'm trying to chase after her and make sure that she's not running straight into, the, straight into the street when I turn my back. So if I just measured during the week, I would get a very different look at what my, my typical gait speed is. So we need to look at the context of how we're measuring across the whole person to try and understand with these metrics what it really looks like. So I would say, for that example, if you just have Monday through Friday. That may, you may have a lot of data there, you may have five days, but you're missing an important context, where if you, may, if you only have three days, but it's Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday, you're probably getting a better overall view of the full look of the, the patient than you would with the five days during just the work week.
3: Yeah, no, and building on that, um, I think we don't always, I mean, we're talking about Pilotsville, we don't always have to do pilots. I think there's quite a lot of really good literature in this space, particularly around um, daily activity beyond, beyond the kind of the, the steps. Um, there was some really nice analysis um, of the NHANES data set by, by Harmon back in 2012 where he titered the hours per day that you would need um, in order to not bias the data and still have statistical significant data. So there's some really good information out there, and the Biobank very much aligning with what you said, talked about those people who had retired. That actually three, three days, three, three days <laughs> is sufficient data. But actually, if you look at the adult working population, then you would need at least five consecutive days, including a weekend. So the information is there for sleep data if you look at the American Academy of Sleep Medicine they talk about you know what's considered to be um, a valid actigraphy data set and similarly um, the ICSD has a lot of information about different sleep disorders so we don't always have to i think reinvent the wheel and maybe one of the things you know dime or another organization could do is actually have a shared set of, of, of data that people could go to mm-hmm. in order to, to actually find, because, again, you know, we're trying to, to carry out studies that can go to the regulators, and having that evidence to support the decisions we've made around valid data sets and missing data, I think it's really important. And, and having access to those, you know, the, that, that literature, I think, could be,
4: could be very important to, uh, along that.
0: It's a great idea. Carrie.
4: I I think you brought up a great point right at the end, Um, regulators. So whatever decision we make, whether we have it Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, or Tuesday, Thursday, or one day in the middle of the week, we're somehow going to have to justify that with data and documentation and whether it's literature based or others. So I think no matter what we're doing. I think it's really key even in Pilotsville or feasibility studies or any type of studies we do is really start to put that in context. And I think while there are some great data points and things captured, I think as we continue to build um, different endpoints and start to look at those, we have to continue to capture that information. And I think until we start to analyze it and look at it and understand what's important based on population, based on age, based on how much what disease you're at, how much data points can I live with? And then we actually have the question, too, of the pharmacokinetics and the action of the drug and the other corresponding things. You know, I don't want to miss, say I miss three days, but that's when the peak yeah. <laughs> PK is and my peak exposure and, and all those are there, and I, I miss those in my digital endpoints. Now what do I do? Um, I think what we put in our protocols and, and all that is going to have to be very well documented, and I think we're just... Excited that we're getting to a point where we're having this conversation. But I think we're going to be continually asked these questions as we move forward.
0: And so what's, so first of all, thank you. That was fantastic. And the point you had about documenting these decisions, I think, is really critically important. But what's the optimal process? We talked about trying to think about these sort of right at the beginning of the day. Craig had great questions um, for me and Jake. And we talked about how to take these individual (laughs) And roll them up into a sort of more strategic approach, right? If we want to tackle missing data um, as a, a concern that is um, pervasive across every digital trial, it's you know we're not doing it outside of the clinic, right? It's uh, it's in the wild, and we don't have full control. What's the best way to go from? Establishing what a valid data set is to thinking about how that fits with the patient population that we're trying to engage to try and write that into the protocol like what's the the order of operations that perhaps at broad brushstrokes we could push out as our our strategy for digital missing data.
4: Come early. Um, (laughs) (laughs) First, bring everybody to the table, your statistician, your data scientists, your clinicians, et cetera, to the table when you first do the design. Mm -hmm. Um, Bring them in for the conversation, look at whatever test subject drug you're looking at or, or activity you're looking at and try to understand the context by what you're doing it uh-huh. and the earlier you can start in the earlier phases whether it's discovery phase one you're going to start to build that data set by the time you get to your phase two phase three you're going to understand hey i don't need to collect for two solid weeks here i only need you know at this peak pk point i need these three things which actually correspond with the clinical visit which happen to do this so i think the earlier you can start -hmm. And start to build that case. It also builds you that documentation. So when you go for registration, et cetera, you can say, based on studies X, Y, and Z, we were able to demonstrate that we need these key data points based on this pharmacology, based Mm -hmm. on this population, et cetera. And uh, yeah, that's my two cents.
2: I'm also going to say that the, the best defense is a good offense on this one, <laughs> and that um, one of the big things about these devices is that we can have real-time compliance data coming in from them if it's a built into the trial and it's built into the device. So an open-loop device that collects all the data and then the patient comes in and gives it back to them and says, okay, here's my three weeks of data, that's really gonna lead to a lot of missing data because they're gonna forget it halfway through, something will have happened, they didn't put it on in the right point, and we only know that uh, after the fact. But if you build into your device and you build into your system a way to actively monitor the device as it's collecting, you can make you can be more offensive about getting the, the data and say, okay, this person hasn't worn it for three days. We need to proactively call them to see what's happening, mm-hmm. to say, okay, we've gone three days without a heart rate measurement for you. What's What's going on? You know, they get a call, oh, well, you know, I forgot about it. Okay, can you put it back on? That kind of thing. So I think that being... Having device manufacturers build in compliance scores and real-time compliance will allow us to kind of cut, uh, address the problem of missing data while it's happening and prevent it from being something that we have to fix on the back end being something that we can correct on the front end
3: yeah I would, that's, I would have agreed Ariel with that completely, and I think even just de- around device selection and maybe part of the, the, the kind of the feasibility process or even the, the device selection is looking at the tolerability of the subjects to use the device. So you know, you're looking at sleep, but the device only has an 18-hour battery you're looking at or you want to use a patch and, you know, somebody can't wear the patch for more than X number of days. So I think it's it's, it's combination of, of active compliance monitoring and device selection that is appropriate for the time or the duration
4: that you, that you wish to, to, to collect the, the data. And all that has to be balanced with operations, but who's gonna call, who's gonna monitor, et cetera. So I think a lot of times we build these beautiful Cadillac, beautiful (laughs) studies, but then we actually have to deploy it to 14 countries, um, 90 sites, et cetera. And you have to think about both that as well as then who's gonna monitor, who's gonna do the phone calls, am I harassing the subject, am I influencing them, et cetera. So it's, it's an interesting balancing game we play.
1: Yeah, but I, I mean, uh, it's an. In, I mean, it's also an essential part, right? Because otherwise, if you if you don't put in the the best practices in terms of monitoring the data, you know, making sure that you're responding in in sort of pseudo real time, um, that the, the data that you might end up with would could be completely unusable, right? Um, and and I would second um, Ariel's point about I think there are a lot of devices that have um, capabilities that, that that provide you with some kind of um, absolute measure of compliance but there there's quite a few that don't and if I think about the biggest reason for uh, missing data or you know poor data quality it is I think by far at least in my experience a non-compliance um, and sometimes you can't do much about you know, people not using devices because people are people. Um, but I think just having the, n- just knowing when the data that you're getting is because the, the the patient just left the device on a sitting on a table or you know carrying around in, uh, carrying them carrying the device around in the purse instead of you know on their body, um, it would it would go a long way in, in um, you know addressing some of the challenges of dealing with missing data.
3: I suppose one of the, the kind of provocative things around digital as we go to more digital studies is actually should we have people's ability to interact with the device as part of the inclusion exclusion criteria because we know from from kind of some of the studies that we run you get the kind of the 80% of patients who are compliant who, who really want to be part of it, who are really bought into it and then you get the kind of the Maybe this were my maths. You know, I'm not a statistician. My maths is <laughs> skewy here. Um, you know, the 15 or 20% who are like me, who just simply forget, and you get the reminding, oh, yeah, sorry, 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 I'll do that. I'll do that. But you do get the, the kind of the, the 5% who, you know, register for the study, go home, and just don't engage. And it's not, it, it doesn't matter whether it's digital or not, but at least if it's a, a, a traditional trial, when they come back for the site, if they do come back to the site, you get the data in your digital study, They never really engage or use and should we as part of our screening our baseline pre-identify that population who will never ever engage with the digital technology truthfully i
2: think it's probably easier to oversubscribe your study and acknowledging that you're going to have five percent loss than it would be to try and engage someone who's sort of a priori made up their mind that they're not going to engage so i think that the that's another where, where obviously everybody wants the smallest study we can possibly get, but in terms of missing data, being able to build in a 10% cushion of, you know, either if you need five days, you tell them to wear it seven days in a row. If you need, you know, 40 subjects, you collect 50. That's a, you know, putting in those traditional cushions yeah. and realizing that with a digital device, you're, you're absolutely going to need those cushions as well. It's just, you know, part of the practice of what, uh, what we should be doing with all these yeah. trials.
0: Fantastic. Um, I'd like to, um, we've got a few minutes left, I'd like to welcome anyone in the audience with questions to come up. Please, go ahead.
3: So what about the other side of missing data? How often do you think your data's fraudulent? Who's made it up? Can they?
2: It kind of depends. It's hard to make up a heart rate. But some of the other ones, it's
3: a... Uh, but would that not be exactly the same for any study? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I think around digital is that we're being held up to much higher standards yeah. than traditional studies. So maybe, you know, I'm on holidays and I get my mum to fill in my paper because I'm away and I don't feel... Like, you know, so we, we, can't, uh, we can't not do it just because there's a potential fraud. And I think there's a much higher ability... Yes, you don't do it. I would imagine it could happen, but, you yeah. know.
4: So if you put your Fitbit in a dryer, you get 6,000 steps, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it can happen. And I have I think... questions
0: about that algorithm, man. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I've tested it. it actually, actually an <laughs> <laughs> Um But one of the things, the nice thing about the data and the digital things is you can actually start to identify in those da- digital streams <laughs> when things are outliers, uh-huh. and there's statistical ways to handle that and ways to handle that data. So that's actually one of the unique aspects of the the stuff that we're getting with the digital, whether it be EPRO or something. If you see a, a, a sudden change, whether it be heart rate, all of a sudden you have a resting heart rate, you're at 70 beats per minute, and all of a sudden you're now resting at 110, It begs to question what's going on, and same with, you know, all of a sudden I've got 6,000 steps in a half an hour. Um, You know, those are things that the the nice thing about having the data scientists and the work that we have, we can actually identify some of that points, whereas it's a lot more challenging if I'm filling out a PRO and I'm um, sitting in my uh, car and realize I forgot to fill out for the last two weeks and I'm busily doing that. Um, I don't have that knowledge, whereas there I actually have a statistical-powered way to uh, eliminate data.
2: Yeah, from a data analytics point of view, if you have an acceleration signal of walking, you can usually tell if it's from the arm or from the leg or from the lower back, just from the way it looks. So you can tell, you know, we can, it's not just, are you walking? We can tell where you put the sensor on in terms of that. So there are, by collecting so much data, we can actually extract things out of it that you'd never be able to get from, uh, from a different type of mod- measuring modality. Meg
5: is this on yeah there we go hi i'm meg Dore from sage bio networks and just this is a comment to follow on um that we at sage uh, which is a nonprofit open science organization have found um that people cheat all of the time on mobile app-based trials because they're human beings and we cheat on everything. Um, but the number <laughs> of people that cheat, to your, to your point, how many people do it, is a small but persistent number. And their digital signatures mm-hmm. are so clear that we can actually, like, for example, if we have a tapping test, a two-fingered tap test um, to measure essential tremor, we can always tell when they're using two hands. Just because of the way that they tap. So, mm-hmm. what's really nice about um, mobile data, digital data, is how incredibly rich it is, and you really can, if you have a good data science team, extract those features and and pull out your cheaters um, pretty easily. Uh, well, and by easily, I mean like using really complicated math that I don't understand. But you know, it looks it looks easy from the outside. Um, and Sage is actually publishing on this. Um, we're we're publishing on. The, um, the persistence of cheating in mobile apps and, and um, from a digital methods perspective sharing our methods about how we identify who those people are so that data That's scientists fantastic. can more easily extract those data that are cheating so the parkinson's empower study has been released in the united states in the netherlands and in more countries that i should know off the top of my head <laughs> Ah, that's a good question. That's a question I don't know the answer to. Yeah. Are fundamentally Americans less honest than other people? <laughs> maybe, maybe this is a question that we need to think about later. <laughs> drinking. Yeah. Good question.
0: Fantastic. Sharmel, um, Ariel, um, Marie, and Carrie, this was terrific. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2019 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference. For information on the upcoming 2020 event, visit theconferenceforum.org.